Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Outpatient visits, these are, these are patient visits outside of the hospitals, were up 20% in March of this year compared to March of 2019. CMS expects this trend away from hospitals and emergent care and this move to outpatient care to continue in the coming decade. Here's another one. Two-thirds of consumers received care via telehealth in 2020. The trend in healthcare is moving away from those traditional four walls of healthcare, the hospital or the doctor's office, and tending toward bringing healthcare to the patient. More and more, a patient does not have to go anywhere to find healthcare. Healthcare can be brought to them. So think about this. Tens and thousands of Americans took a medical test at home sometime in the past two years. Of course, you say, the COVID test, big deal, it was easy. And that's the point. Look how easy it was for a large majority of us to conduct a medical test on ourselves at home. It shows how easy it is to move what was once only done in hospitals or doctor's offices into the home. And that's why I'm excited today to talk to Robert Robin Farmian, author of the recently released book, How AI Can Democratize Healthcare. In that book, and, and hopefully Hopefully in this discussion, we're going to talk about this trend away from the traditional four walls of healthcare toward at-home delivery and how artificial intelligence, AI, is key to this movement. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. I am Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the HIT community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And like I said, we are very excited to have Robin Farmian, author of the book, How AI Can Democratize Healthcare. Robin is a professional speaker and healthcare entrepreneur working with cutting-edge artificial intelligence software, device, and pharma companies poised to impact 100 million patients. Within these companies, she focuses on strategy, business development, revenue, and fundraising. Robin, welcome, and so very glad to have you on The Collective Voice. I have been incredibly looking forward to this. Like I stalked you before this interview, and you are a very cool person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you got to tell my kids that then. I'm going to quote. <laughs> uh, so, tell us a little bit about yourself, Robin. How did how did you? Uh, what, what's your origin story here? How did you get into healthcare more generally into AI? Sure. So, um, I have worked on more than twenty early stage startups now across things like curing cancer, cryopreservation, inhaled insulin, virtual reality for stroke and brain injury rehabilitation. I mean, I really go after the big diseases. And the reason is, is because at the age of 16, I was misdiagnosed with an autoimmune disease, ended up resulting in 43 hospitalizations, six major surgeries, and three organs removed. Now, at the age of 26, this was seven years after I'd had my entire large intestine surgically removed, total colectomy with J-pouch. My doctors were telling me I was cured, but I wasn't, and I was in extreme pain. So over time, they kept upping my methadone dose until eventually I was on 80 milligrams a day of methadone. 
Now, this is a gigantic dose of medication, and I hated it. So I went to my pain doctor, and I said, I need off this medication. I think it's worse than actually the, re the, the normal pain. And she said, okay, well, next up could be to surgically implant a morphine pump into your spine. I was like, are, are you kidding me? I was a shut-in. I was 26 years old. I could barely take a shower on a daily basis. And what I was hearing was that was the rest of my life. And so I said, absolutely not. And I fired my entire healthcare team. Took control of my own healthcare. I went home that night, dropped my own methadone dose by 40% and went through severe opioid withdrawal by myself for about a week. And then I rebuilt my care team with doctors that worked with me as a team and a colleague. I ended up getting diagnosed correctly with Crohn's disease, put on an IV medication called Remicade, and within 24 hours of that very first dose, I went into remission. Oh, my goodness. That, that is quite a story. And, and I've got to say, uh, congratulate you on, on first getting through all that, but also having the courage to fire your medical team. That, that is really something to say, you know, I think I know what's wrong with me and I can do this a little bit better than you all. That's really something. Yep. And, and I didn't go on by myself. Like my very first book back in 2015 is called The Patient as CEO. I was the CEO of a care team, but I brought on the experts. I brought on new GI doctors, new endocrine doctors, new primary care doctors who looked at my case from the beginning. Right. And so it's not patients going at it alone. It's patients being in control of their team. Right. Very good. Very good. And, and you know, so many, uh, so many guests on this show do have personal experiences with themselves, with the family and, and healthcare, and they end up going into healthcare itself. Now, is that, is that what happened to you? You, you became CEO of your own, of your own life, certainly, and, and of your medical team, but where did you head after that? So that's when I went into the working world and I started in genetic testing, world, uh, the country's first consumer-facing genetic testing company. I wrote the algorithms that led from the SNPs to the client reports. Um, it was back in 2005. Don't do the math. <laughs> um, and then I moved into telemedicine, EMRs, uh, inhaled insulin, sleep apnea, medical devices. I mean, I really like to go after those big, hard problems with those Big deal diseases. Very good. All right. So now tell us a little bit about your book, How AI, Artificial Intelligence, Can Democratize Healthcare. What's, what's the thesis here? Well, essentially what it's doing is helping us move from sick care to continuous care. Right. So no longer just going to see a doctor or getting your vital signs done when you need it at that point in time, once or twice a year. Instead, with the ability to bring a lot of software and the clinical grade devices coming along with that, we're able to do vital signs 24 seven in a patient's home when they're sick and when they're well. And that right there is going to unlock so many secrets. If you think about something like hypertension, one out of three Americans are hypertensive, but most of our blood pressure data is on people at their sickest or at a single point in time with a clinic visit. We hadn't had that ability to do 24 hour a day, seven day a week blood pressure monitoring continuously on patients in their home environment and at their baseline when they're at their healthiest. Right. Uh, it, it, it's kind of brilliant. And I, and I think it's kind of like it's kind of folding in healthcare as to everything else we do. Right. So I, I check my bank account every day. It's something I have right there on the phone. Right. I might have a wellness app that tells me I'm a little behind on my push ups, whatever it is. Right. So you're saying like like put it within the fiber of what we do every day. 
Exactly. I mean, and we're seeing some of the big giants getting in on this. So CVS Aetna, last year they launched the Symphony, which is a, a, a kit that comes with a smart speaker and wall sensors for fall detection and air quality and air temperature monitoring. And it's got a 911 function and it's meant for aging in place. And so like we're seeing even the giants in healthcare putting devices into the home that are HIPAA compliant, that can act as that 24 hour a day, seven day a week home health aid, essentially collecting data and making sure that you're okay in the home all the time. I love it. So not just a smart home, but a home who's a doctor. I like that. Exactly. <laughs> That's good. Good. And what's the, uh, what's the, what's the democratize? I think you're getting there, right? But what is the, what does that mean to democratize healthcare? So to bring it to people who don't necessarily have access or easy access. I mean, like I live a mile away from some of the main medical centers here in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? I can access care, but I'm one of the few, right? Like I'm in a city, people are in places that are much more remote and throughout the country in places in Texas, in California, in Arizona, in Tennessee, in Virginia, all have places that are relatively, you know, isolated from being able to have easy access to a doctor. I mean, even if they're only an hour away from something, that is an insurmountable task for many patients. Um, especially if they're not feeling well, but then thinking about even just well care. A lot of people work, you know, seven days a week or five days a week and they have their children and they're taking care of their parents and they've got their mortgage. They don't have time to go an hour round trip each way to see a healthcare professional. And so this shift of care into the home, including the AI software, including the clinical grade devices, but then the industry as a whole from CMS to United Healthcare to Anthem are all pulling out some of these incredibly um, important things like IV medication, dialysis and urgent care and pulling that out of the hospitals and into the home which means people who wouldn't maybe go to urgent care or the emergency room and they end up getting sicker and sicker and sicker and going into something like neutropenia or having a heart attack. Instead, sending a nurse to their home with all these clinical grade devices that are teeny tiny and inexpensive now, comparatively speaking, and being able to bring that to people where they are in time, not let them actually travel to a city. Excellent. Uh, and what's the AI part of that? How, how does the AI function in that? So first of all, the sheer amount of data coming from this, if you're going to be doing something 24 hours a day, seven day a week monitoring, you need that AI component behind the scenes managing that data. Think about the new deal with Medtronic and BioIntelligence. BioIntelligence has a 90 day sensor that six to a patient's chest and it is clinical grade. It has that single lead EKG. Um, it can then from that and from PPG probably technology, it's able to extrapolate all of the clinical grade vital signs that you would need for someone in acute care, right? And so they are literally taking millions of measurements a day. Doctor cannot possibly look through that kind of data. And so you need the AI component behind the scenes that's managing and interpreting and analyzing that data and being able to serve it up to the physician and to the patient in easy to understand language. Like here is your average or here is your spikes, right? Gotcha. So the AI is kind of doing the the the, uh, the groundwork, as it were. And 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 on that note, then, um, wh where's the, what's the difference? And and we have uh, 
you know, we have both sides kind of coming onto the show sometimes where um, there's this urge to get at home care, but there's always that sense that sooner or later you've got to see a doctor. So where does the at home like machines that are keeping track of me, where does that stop and where does the doctor begin? Or does so it, ever- it, it doesn't actually need to stop and be in a clinic unless you're doing something like surgery, right? That's a whole different story. But if you're doing IVs, dialysis, urgent care, stitches, um, any of that type of thing, or even just well care, all of that can be done in the home and is a, does not necessarily need a physician involved at all in some of these cases. And then if they do, it can be done over video. So take CMS's um, uh, ET3 program. That's emergency care at home. What they do is they send a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant and a technician in an ambulance. And if they're able to take care of the patient in place, they do. But if they can't and they do need to see a doctor, they do it right then and there over video with the nurse or the physician's assistant sitting next to the patient, right? So they are seeing a doctor, but they're not leaving their home, right? And there are other um, things to think about with that because not only can you just do it by video, but you can have tools and do it without the nurse or the physician's assistant. So thinking about companies like Care. Care is a telemedicine toolkit that has medical device applicators that fit onto a video camera, an otoscope for the ear, a stethoscope, temperature monitor, and a tongue depressor. And what you do is you call a healthcare professional over video and they walk you through using the clinical grade devices on yourself or say on like, say a screaming toddler. <laughs> and because the doctor is the one who sees the live video camera feed, she can say things like, hey, move the stethoscope up a little bit or move it to the left a little bit. Now, in addition, Care specifically, uh, they cleared the FDA with an AI enabled lung sound analyzer. And so you're seeing these kinds of innovations start to be layered, right? Tidal Cave first came out and they were just the devices and the video cameras, right? Which can be also be done asynchronously. But now they are layering on top of that with that lung sounds analyzer, taking the physician even further away from needing to be there so frequently. Hmm. So, so I, think, I, I think we're getting a good vision of what this means for patients, right? They don't need to travel as far. Um, it can be almost seamlessly included in their day-to-day habit. They, they almost don't have to stop, right? I've heard about like sweat patches that like measure what you're sweating. So you know exactly, you know, whether you've had enough water that day, right? Um, but from the point of view of the provider, how would this change the provider's um, first day-to-day tasks, but also maybe their relationship with the patient? It it changes it significantly. So first of all, if you have like my primary care, I have at One Medical, which of course was just bought by Amazon, which is a very big deal when you think about it in a lot of ways. And she's willing to like have things like my Apple Watch or help me prescribe things in the home. Like she's up to date. She gets it like and she really wants to integrate some of these new innovations by and being able to do that, now she is able to know my stats on you know, a monthly basis, or she doesn't even need to actually watch the stats. So if you think of companies like Alacrity Care, what they do is they piggyback on a couple of the clinical grade devices in the home for oncology care, and they catch things like neutropenia, cytokine storm, and sepsis you know, days, if not even more than a week earlier than a patient would need to be readmitted. Now, the doctor isn't necessarily getting all that data right? Uh, Behind the scenes, you've got algorithms who are watching that data and 
flag the patient and they flag the doctor when it needs to be flagged. Right. And so my doctor doesn't have to worry about me anymore. She knows that the software is going to flag her if there's something going on and I'm starting to crash. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very interesting. So it almost, almost it, it, even though you're not, you may not be seeing your doctor for that, you know, 12 minutes that he or she may give you in the, in the office, they may actually may know much more about you on any given day. Exactly, exactly. And then you can have things like diagnostic tests in the home because, and, and there's a big problem with that when you're looking at something like Everly Well or Let's Get Checked. And by the way, Let's Get Checked, one of their investors is United Healthcare. But these are tests that are diagnostic tests. They are not reimbursable. They're direct to consumer, $40 to $300 for things like your CBC, your platelets, your you know liver function, STIs. But they're not actionable by a doctor. And let me tell you about that. So like you get these in the mail and you prick the end of your finger for capillary blood and you throw it back in the mail and they usually use CLIA certified labs. So you should be able to, you know, rely on the results. But the big problem is, is in the world of healthcare, you need that clean chain of, uh, of medical data. Right. And so my doctor, like, imagine I got one of those and it came back and it said my liver function test was off. And I immediately email my GI doc and I'm like, oh no, my liver function test is off. He says, the very first thing he is going to do is repeat the test using mm. a phlebotomist. Absolutely. Because he needs to verify and validate that it was in fact me that took the test, that I took the test correctly, right? Like these things aren't like no brainers, right? They, they actually take concentration that um, it didn't get disrupted in the mail or any of those types of things, and that he can trust the lab that used it. And if my doctor is not the one who ordered those labs, he's not going to be able to trust the results. And so he has to repeat the test, which then, you know, like you're like, well, why did I just go and do that diagnostic test? There are other companies that are popping up that really make that type of a test actionable. So you think of companies like EMED. EMED partnered with Abbott and they, they have a number of diagnostic, other diagnostic tests, but you might have heard of them through the coronavirus tests. And they partnered up with Abbott so you could get a rapid antigen test and call one of their proctors, a certified proctor over video. That proctor verifies and validates the patient's identity, that the test kit was closed, that the patient did the uh, collected the sample correctly and actually performed the test correctly. And then the, they watch the test and verify and validate the actual test results. And all of a sudden that test is actionable, meaning all uh, like if it came out positive, they immediately send me into a telemedicine visit, which can then uh, look and see if one of the antivirals would be good for me with, with, uh, with my health. Right, right. So um, what, what might be, it, it, you know, it's a beautiful picture. What are some of the obstacles uh, getting there? Is, it, is there legislation, say, with the HIPAA? Is it expensive? What, what are some of the obstacles to get us there? So um, it's actually much, much cheaper to do it this way in many, many re for many reasons. Um, but, yeah, the big obstacles are reimbursement um, and doctors actually knowing about these things and patients actually knowing about these things. I find that the doctors only know what's in their, you know, field of study very specifically or what their hospital tells them. They do not have time to go out and learn about all these different innovations to help their patients. Someone needs to educate them. Someone needs to tell 
the patience these things exist, right? And so that I think is one of the biggest barriers. And then of course the reimbursement piece, but the reimbursement piece is coming along with remote therapeutic monitoring now being reimbursed. Digital therapeutics are reimbursed. We're gonna see a lot more of these in-home diagnostic tests over the next few years start to get reimbursed. Especially when you think about organizations like Moving Health Home, which was started by Amazon. And the mm. only reason that group exists is to help adjust reimbursement on anything that happens in the home environment. Gotcha. And is, is like Medicare either leading the way or are we expecting Medicare to lead the way in reimbursement? Or we think this is going to come from the commercial sector? They're leading the way. I'm so proud of them. I look at them all the time. So they're the ones who started the ET3 program, Urgent Care in the Home, which is a a voluntary payment model that's going on right now. They're the ones who started pushing um, dialysis into the home, I think, even before Humana was doing it. And they're the ones who, who are now covering digital therapeutics. Those are not covered by normal big insurance companies. It's covered by CMS and in under some employee formularies. But otherwise, it's, you know, this is exciting. Like CMS is leading the way in this shifting care to the home. I'm, I'm so excited about it. <laughs> That's great. That's very good. Um, uh, to getting back to the AI part, um, there was a, a New York Times uh, opinion piece a bit ago, and it was called, We Need to Talk About How Good AI is Getting. Uh, and we've had a couple of conversations on this show about that. It, 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 do we need to, as a society or as a legislation, or do we need to set up limits to what we're going to allow AI to do? Because, uh, you know, the fear there is AI is going to get so smart that that they're going to figure out that the, the problem here are human errors and the way to get rid of human errors to get rid of the doctor, right? So what, what, what's your point of view on on what to do about AI? So it's, well, the horse has left the stable, like trying to legislate after the fact. And I mean, we're seeing that with things like Facebook and social media, right? Like they're trying to legislate it. They're trying to even understand it. They can't. It's pervasive throughout the society. And that's where we are with AI in general. So the big problem um, beyond like the horse has left the stable is that it's trained on data that was existing, Now, most medical data that is either in the clinical trial space is done on white males uh, between a certain age range, right? Um, Secondly, when you're looking at the the other data that AI is trained on, it's in the hospital systems, it's in the EMRs, which means it's only trained on data on people when they're at their sickest, right? It doesn't unlock those secrets. And so the really exciting thing about AI um, going forward is that we can have much cleaner data that is set up in a correct way that is coming from, you know, every type of human being on earth, not just one set, um, you know, a small subset of the population and that it's going to be continuous. And so we're going to have a lot more to work with. I love that actually, because it's a great point. We know a lot about what it means to be sick, Um, But we really don't know a lot about what needs to be healthy because nobody takes, you know, (laughs) measurements or takes data about when you're healthy. You don't you don't go any place where they record that. Exactly. And so AI is getting good enough for um, wonder if you've heard of a company called Pronuvo. It's direct to consumer uh, MRIs. So like it's like $2,000 or $2,400 and they do a full head and body MRI. They have like a top of the line machine where they've they've actually made it better. And then behind the scenes, they've developed their own AI tools that automatically do things like number the vertebrae, 
uh, measure visceral fat and measure, measure organ size. This is not something that you could typically do without a pathologist in the room, right? And so they have the AI tools that are able to do that on someone's MRI and do longitudinal health data over years. So you can go get an MRI that is a full body and head every two years, and it can catch things like early stage pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, or any of those other things. And it's because of the AI component that it's able to immediately look for all for 500 different conditions. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. We're talking with Robin Farman Farmian. She's author of the book, How AI Can Democratize Healthcare. Uh, Robin, I'll leave you with the final word. Anything else that we might not have touched on that you want to talk about? Oh, um, the world of vocal biomarkers, which is using <laughs> a patient's voice as an actual vital sign. And so I'll leave you with two examples. Uh, one is a company called Sond, and they have identified four thousand unique features to the human voice. Four thousand. They're already working on things like respiratory. So being able to tell through a six second voice test that um, you are starting to get a respiratory illness. It's not being a diagnostic. What they are doing is they are measuring a set of symptoms. Right. And so this, you know, there's a symptom that your voice is getting tighter. There might be a problem like respiratory COVID. They're also working on depression as well as sleepiness. But then a really, another incredibly cool application of AI voice technology and vocal biomarkers is a company called Hyfe AI. And what they are doing is they are counting the number of times someone coughs on a daily basis. Think about that for a second. Think about how much of a game changer that is. Imagine I have a chronic cough. I go into my doctor who's changed my medication. Doc says, hey, Robin, how's your cough doing? I think it's better, Doc. Well, how many times did you cough yesterday? I don't know, seven, 40, 300? I mean, there is no way we can count the talk, uh, the number of times that we cough. So not only does it count the coughs, but it records them. So a doctor later on can go back and listen to the patient's coughs. So this is great for disease trajectory, right? Um, if you are changing medications, clinical trials. And then there are other companies who are categorizing the coughs. Was that a whooping cough? Was that a wheezing cough? And so being able to do that in the home, that is so exciting to me. That's, uh, and that's called vocal biomarkers, is that right? Yep, vocal biomarkers using the voice as a vital sign. I love it, I love it. And you know, we probably can't get into the subject, but I like the idea too is, you know, it's certainly directional, uh, sending the data to, uh, to a medical facility or a medical professional, it's great. But also there's a biofeedback kind of, mechanism is to, to it too. We will get to learn a lot more about our bodies that we didn't realize we coughed 20 times yesterday, right? And it may change some of our health uh, habits if we decide, well, maybe we won't go to uh, Mickey D's today because the last time I did that, my biomarker said something. I think it's an interesting other aspect. It's, I mean, I, I, so I'll just leave you with this company name. January AI is doing predictive glucose response. Based on three days of back continuous glucose monitoring data combined with a heart monitor, they are able to predict before you eat that apple how your glucose is going to respond. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I can predict it. I love it. Predict wow. it. And again, that's the AI component of being able to come off these clinical grade devices in the home, a continuous glucose monitor. Yes, yes. So um, where can we go to find your book, How AI Can Democratize Healthcare? 
So I am the only Robin Farman Farmian in the entire universe. And you can even spell my name completely wrong and Google will still find me immediately. Um, so the, the website for the book is democratizinghealthcare.ai. And uh, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all of that. I love it. I love it. And I, <laughs> I want that superpower too, that whenever you type in your name, it's going to become up you and nobody else. That's great. I know. Well, you, you got to have a crazy last name like Fluffernutter, Farson Nugan. <laughs> Farman Farman Farman. Farman. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, uh, Robin. This has been a great discussion. We've been talking with Robin Farman Farmian, author of the book, How AI Can Democratize Healthcare. And uh, this has been the collective voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. You can find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Robin, and be safe.